Um, well, we are continuing a sermon series through the book of Matthew uh, called King and Kingdom. And we have quickly realized that Jesus' idea of king and Jesus' idea of kingdom are completely polar opposites from those he came. And that's one of the reasons why he came. They had done an excellent job of really messing up the will and the plans um, that God had for uh, them initially. God knew this from the very foundations, before the foundations of the earth. And um, Jesus was already in process. That has always been the plan to redeem um, our even our inability to understand what God has for us. And so um, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 15, to kind of catch you up to speed, um, is Jesus has been training and testing his disciples. He's done this through a variety of ways. He has fed a multitude, and as a child, I was taught that it was all about the bread and the fish and about all those people, and Jesus can make a good Long John Silver's meal, right? Um, we quickly understood that this is not what the purpose of that was. It was more about Jesus declaring something about himself and discipling those 12 men who are yet to believe completely that Jesus is God. From that situation, Jesus dismisses the crowd. He, gets, he makes the disciples get onto a boat. He sends them across the lake, um, and he goes up into the mountains to pray. In the middle of the night, these men have been fighting the wind and the waves all night long. Jesus sees them, um, and he decides that he will walk out to their boat, get into their boat with them. But the magnitude of that story is not that Jesus walked on the water and explaining that, or that he calls Peter out to walk on the water and explaining that. The, the magnitude and the, the ultimate, the penultimate sermon in the sentence has to do in that passage where Jesus declares, I am, I am is here. Jesus is declaring that he is God. And so we left off last week with the disciples, probably for the first time, they understood that he was rabbi. There was something definitely very mysterious about this man and his power. But now the disciples, those 12, though they don't completely understand it, um, now they do because they're in glory, but at this point they still don't understand it completely, but they understand and worship Jesus as God, which would have been blasphemous to Judaism, however, unless that Jesus is God. And so they go from there, it's like the next morning they're in this boat, they kind of end up on shore, Jesus goes into the, the kind of coastal city there, he begins to preach, teach, and heal, and even people uh, come and they touch the hem of his garments, and I preach sermons on that, you can look it up online, um, and they are healed. And so Jesus kind of stays in this area, and we get to chapter 15, uh, verse uh, 1 there, where it says, then... The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. All right. Since we see this group of Pharisees coming specifically from Jerusalem, then we can infer with good listening and reading skills that there's probably something very particular. This was not just a kind of fly-by-night, um, we're going to go ask Jesus a question. This appears to be a group of Pharisees that are sent probably um, by the ultimate authorities among the Pharisees inside of Jerusalem to really test Jesus once again, to try to twist what he's doing, to try to twist um, what he is saying. So this, this is confrontational, though they're probably not coming at it. Um, they're trying to, be, trying to be extremely secretive about this. Instead of celebrating what Jesus has done in these sick and poor people's lives, what do they want to do? 
they want to ask a question. And what's the question that they ask? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Some of you right now, especially you germaphobes, are thinking, that's a great question. Because it's disgusting for someone to eat and to not wash their hands. So, Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their nasty hands before they eat? Right? I mean, this is a common question. It's a, a, as parents, even if we don't wash ours, we'll often look at our children and say, did you wash your hands before you ate? All right? Did you brush your teeth before you went to bed? And us parents just come on up in the bed not brushing ours. Right? Nasty. Um, so we, we get this question, but it's important in early Judaism to recognize the context and the times. This idea of washing their hands before they ate had nothing to do with germs. These people had no idea what germs were, okay? This is, this is pre-modern technology. This was established within early Judaism, within the Old Testament, within the commands of God, um, that it would be a ritual cleansing, Okay? This is more about a symbolic picture before God and an appreciation, kind of like how we pray before meals. They would pray before their meal, but they would also wash their hands. But specifically, though, this command was not given to anybody except the priest. So it wasn't given to the common person. This would be, if we were to equate it to church experience, this is something that God would have told Justin and myself as your elders that before we eat a meal, before we do a lot of different things, that we have to go and to wash our hands. This was an act of spiritual cleansing uh, before entering the tabernacle, before eating, and a lot of different things. So this command was given from God to these elders, to these priests, but the Pharisees have a way of taking God's word and twisting it, molding it, shaping it, adding the yoke of its burden more and more weight. And what God has put onto the priest, the Pharisees want and expect all of the Jews to do this. So the Pharisees expanded the law of God. How, how, how do you do that, <laughs> really? They, they expanded the law of God and forcing everyone to do these things. Now, this happens in all of the Old Testament with all of the 613 commandments. There's not just 10. There's 613 of them bad boys inside the Old Testament. And so people began to really question, well, what, is Jesus, what does God mean by this? And so they, the Pharisees came up with a traditional book of, of all the explanations of how to follow God's law. It was called the Mishnah. And even inside of the Mishnah, this Jewish pharisaical writing, there are thousands of words on simply how to wash your hands, how much water to use. If the hand is just from the meat of your hand to there, or does it encompass the entire wrist, all right? What kind of water can you use? So, I mean, the, the hipsters and millennials, they're only going to use like Aquafina or like, that's probably not even good enough for them anymore, I don't know. Y'all have to tell me. All right, I am cool, I am uncool, I drink from the tap, and I know that that grosses many of you out, okay? But I'm old school, I guess. Um, but we, we see this, this is how detailed this Mishnah, these traditional laws were. 
And so what, what happened here um, inside of the Old Testament and inside of New Testament times as well with the Mishnah and the Pharisees, you got to get this picture, all right? Um, you have God's command, you know, do this, don't do this. This is from God, burning bush word of God. Then you have man's interpretation of that, man's traditions of that, man's explanation of that that is called the Mishnah. And what has happened inside of Judaism, courtesy of the Pharisees, is that the law of God and the traditions are equal. You get that? God says this, man says this, but in their culture now for hundreds if not thousands of years, the Jews have been living as though those things are one and the same. Okay? Much like it for us as Protestant evangelical Christians, uh, we don't have extra books called the Apocrypha, which got read at the inauguration this week, and a lot of people didn't re recognize that. Um, also, we don't have the extra books of Mormon, okay? Um, we, we don't adhere to those things, but imagine equating or coming to one of us who are, are Christians, evangelical Protestants, and saying the Apocrypha is the same as the New Testament. Does that bother anybody in here? Yes, if you're a Christian, the answer is yes. Even if you don't know why, somebody asks you that, you say yes. Is the Book of Mormon the same as the Old and New Testament? Here's the answer, no, it is not the same. Even if you can't explain it, just know it, drop the mic, leave, okay? Say, ah, I got a stomachache, I gotta go. Something, make up something, all right? Even if you can't explain it. So you need to get that. But that is what is happening here. The Word of God. And the writings of man are equal. The Word of God, Dr. Seuss, John Grissom, Golden Book, whatever. The Word of God had become equal. So, what is Jesus' response? And I love Jesus. He gives sarcastic people like me a way to cherry-pick verses <laughs> and to make it gospel. Because <laughs> it's tough to tell Jesus' tone here, but listen to what Jesus says. He's such a good speaker and debater because he's God. He answers them in verse 3, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? So instead of first answering, what does he do? He throws the ball back. He asks them a question. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever uh, reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and his mother, um, what would you have gained from me in given to God? He need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you made void the word of God. All right, if you have your own Bible, here's what I want you to do. I want you to highlight, mark, asterisk, something, these three verses. Jesus, three times in these passages, rebukes them for holding traditions, not just equal, but holding traditions over the very Word of God. So that's in verse 3, that's in verse 6, and that is in verse 9. Why do you hold these things over? You are teaching the doctrines of man as the commandments. So see what Jesus is doing here? He is, they are speaking, well, our tradition says this, 
And God says, well, God says this, and they do not equate you are being willing to do the traditions of man, but you are unwilling to do the will of our Father. And that come across in two different ways. If you are a young person or a teenager in here, like my nephew Ben, like Ansley and Avery, this is for you. I'm trying to help you out this morning. Pastor loves you, all right? Listen to this. Here's what happens inside of this passage, right? What is Jesus, what's the commandment that Jesus uses? What's the, what's the commandment that Jesus uses? To honor your parents. To honor them. Did you know inside the young people, inside the Old Testament, if you were to be disrespectful to your parents, verbally slandering, rolling your eyes at your parents, it is punishable by death. It's punishable by death. You are to honor your parents. See, when you're a small little kid, your parents deserve your obedience because they do everything for you, right? When you become a teenager, you should honor your parents with your words, with your actions, with your thoughts, with your speech, with your tone, as it is one, honoring them and respecting them. But some of us are getting a little bit older, and we've often asked the question, well, how do we honor our parents as we get older? You know, I think about a person like Cynthia and Mike Llewellyn. Their um, moms are both older. Um, Mike's lives in, in Tennessee. Cynthia's lives in Louisiana. And we miss Miss Cynthia every few weeks as she goes to take place. She's in her 90s, right? Um, her mom, who's in her 90s. So you get the picture here that God has for us as we get older, that we, the role reversal takes place. Who used to wipe our hind ends, we must be respectful, honorable, and serving our parents to do whatever it takes to take place or to take care of the elderly. All right? Paul is going to also address this. Who is supposed to take care of the widow? The church? Not first. The first line of defense is for those of us who are now middle age, we are to take care of our parents. Okay? This not only has biblical um, ramifications, but it has global ramifications, especially in America, where the, the kind of uh, nursing home business is going to explode, and it's primarily out of the fact that you and I don't want to take care of our ailing parents. Let's just be really honest. But as Christians, if at all possible, if they are near, we're to take care of them. And what was happening was not only were these Jewish people not honoring their parents with their words and respect, but this is what is also taking place. And Mark talks about this. He even gives this law a name. It's called Corbin. So what was happening inside of the Mishnah, the Mishnah created a way where if you had a plot of land and your parents were starving, they're sick, and they could use a portion of that land to farm and to get money and those sorts of things, what you could do is you could say when your parents came to you, Corbin, or I have dedicated this land to God. And that law, inside of their tradition, allowed them to continue to cultivate it, but they could not give a portion of any of it to their parents. Do you see the issue? So anything that you had, um, I need to borrow your car. 
from your parents. I need to borrow your car. I'm, I can't let you borrow that. I've given my car to the Lord. I need a place to live. I need a place to stay. I'm sorry. I can't welcome you to come live with me because I've given our house to the Lord. It belongs to him. It is for my use, but it is for no one else's. I mean, I would be breaking tradition if I was to do this. Could you imagine the rippling effects that it, of confrontation that is happening when these, these people? This was not some newfangled thing that they had just learned. This is the way that their families had been living for years and years and years and years and years. And Jesus is saying that you are honoring and, and living out in obedience all of these traditions, but you are not following the very word of our God. See, Jesus steps into that scene. He is not afraid of confrontation when it is centered around biblical truth. We must be willing, as Jesus was, to shoot all sacred cows that rise up even within Christianity and the church. Jesus steps into this situation. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. This is unbiblical. It is, un, it is not under the commands of God. This must change. This is serious accusations against these Jewish leaders. Serious. The Catholic Church, we have said in, for years, right, one of the major issues between us as Protestants and Catholics is that they believe that their tradition is equivalent to the authority of the infallible, inerrant Word of God. That's why they do things quite differently than you and I do. It's because it's very pharisaical. Whatever tradition or new tradition comes into play, it is as though God orchestrated for that to happen, and we are to follow it. However, brothers and sisters, I think it's very important before we just fall into the sin of looking at you know, cynically or critically, just at the Pharisees and Catholic folks, um, it is very important uh, for us to understand that this can be true of us as well. Man-made traditions outweighing the truth of God. Now, some of these are silly, but all of these that I'm about to read to you are experiences that I have or have been close to, okay? The nativity. Who was there that night? Shepherds? Wise men? Not in the Bible. They came later, okay? But what are all of our, our and even the idea of three wise men, where is that? It's not in the Bible. So some of these are, like I said, they're, they're silly. Some of them get extremely serious. Um, quoting and saying, you know, like the Scripture says, God helps those who help themselves. Not, not there. Uh, one of the men in our church was speaking to another man um, in our community this week, and the man said to him, you know, like the Bible says, teach a man to fish. Not, not there. Um, should we be singing, you know, uh, hymns, hymns only, or praise choruses in the war that, that fights out between that? Um, all alcohol is wrong for consumption. 
Um, this was so true inside of my Pentecostal grandmother that she would not use vanilla extract because it had alcohol in it. My grandmother also believed highly in the idea of modesty to the point that a woman should wear a dress all the time. I've only seen my grandmother when she was still living in a dress one time, and that's she was wearing pants, dress pants, under it at her own house while she was vacuuming. Okay? Very serious. Um, no food inside the church. All right, so the fellowship hall has to be outside. Um, baptism. You must be saved to be baptized. Excuse me, to be saved, you must be baptized. And if you, don't, if you dunk them and like their pinky is out, you got to do it again, right? In fear that it wasn't a real baptism and they die on the way home and they will split the gates of hell wide open because their pinky didn't get wet. All right? Um, how many of you have heard this one? Uh, Jesus gave his very best on the cross. So you know how you can give your very best? By dressing up on Sunday mornings. Whew. I, I had a man tell me this as a high school student, sitting inside of a classroom with other men. He said this, I am not a racist, but if my daughter marries a black man, she is no longer my daughter. That was said to, to me. King James Version of the Bible only. You know, I grew up in a church where married people, even like my parents, um, were not allowed to wear wedding bands because it was a sign of adorning yourself with gold. I got to watch my dad, my sister and I got to watch our dad give my mom her first wedding band at Christmas one year because my parents were like, that's dumb. All right? You know, I grew up being around people who said no movies, even if Kirk Cameron's in them. No bowling because um, they serve beer at the bowling alley. Um, they didn't call it swimming, they call, or swimming, they called it mixed bathing. We can't have any mixed bathing. So I went to a Pentecostal charismatic church camp growing up where they didn't at one time had a pool, and I've told this story before, but they would take us to a water slide with mixed company but we had to wear sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Now, I don't know if you've ever been swimming in a jumpsuit, but when you get out of the water, it looks like your flesh is melting off of you. And all we did was walk around trying to keep our pants up because they're so heavy. And so it was the kind with the blue mat. Remember that kind, the concrete, like, you know, a bobsled, but you're in there with a Anybody follow me here? Did anybody have a childhood that was worth anything? <laughs> All right. So you, you, would, you would get done, and I mean, you're just, it's like we're all melting, trying to get back up to the top of this hill, packing a mat and 50 pounds worth of water weight. Traditions. Like I said, some of them, silly some of them more serious. Just ask any new pastor at a local church. What gets that new pastor in trouble is not typically his preaching, unless he's preaching the Bible and they've had someone that hasn't been for years. And that happens. But typically, is, it, is that what gets that man on the chopping block 
is him shooting sacred cows that have been in that local church for some period of time that no one even recognizes them anymore. Have you ever been to a church where they did this for a long period of time and then they stopped doing X, Y, and Z and people had a fit? They had a fit. We don't do that anymore. Well, is, is it in the Word of God? Mm, no, not, not really, but it's, it's what I like. It's my personal preference. It's, it's my tradition. What, what gets him in trouble, what gets all of us or can get us in trouble is when we elevate these traditions above the very word of God. Most church splits do not happen, or many of the frustrations that happen within people, within church, is not over people pressing into the word. So they disagree, but hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The word is our authority, so we're going to rest under that, and we're going to you know, work this out inside of the word. No, what causes most church splits is when people feel that they are losing grip of their traditions. I mean, cancel Sunday school at some of these places, right? Or no longer offer a class that you once offered. Or move to only offering a Sunday morning experience so that the family can be together and be missional on Sunday nights. Major things. In the, in the 80s and 90s, we called it the worship wars, right? You can only sing hymns. These praise courses, they're from the devil. Did you know that's exactly the same thought that people had when they started writing hymns? Because you know where hymns, melodies come from? The bar. The next time you sing a hymn, act like you got a mug in your hand and go like that. And it fits. It does. They freaked out at the singing of original hymns. Now people are freaking out over contemporary praise and worship. The reality is both are wrong if they're not centered in the divine word of God. And both can be right if they are biblically sound. See, God's word trumps always tradition and personal preference that you and I have. You've heard this story, some of you. I I, was, I, had a, I had a man come across my desk one time at another church that I was serving at because we were serving donuts, cakes, pastries, drinks, sugary things after the worship experience. So we have church, or have the worship gathering. You go out there, and there is a Ryan's buffet of sugar and carbs. We would eat that. Our kids would all be like, eh, you know, freaking out, and then we would go eat again. All right, so we're promoting gluttony. We're causing our kids to be all over the place. And I, I was like, uh, let's offer some donuts and coffee before, save a lot of money, have a worship experience, go eat together as a church. And I had a man leave my church over that. I said, man, let's talk about the Word of God. Let's come to the Word of God over this. And I gently pushed my Bible across to show him where I had done anything wrong in which he slid it back to me and said, I do not want to talk about what's inside that Bible. I want to talk about donuts. It happens. It can happen to us here at missions, at Mission Church. The issues when it comes to our traditions um, is that often traditions become idols. 
but also our theology is what is at the center of traditions and what is at the center of some theology is not God and his glory and his character and his providence and his sovereignty. No, at the center of a lot of traditions and a lot of theology is me. Me. Many times we have a thought that we believe is true, right? So you come up with this idea, this thought, and then you come to Scripture and try to wrap that thought like a taco in the Word of God. When the reality is, is that God desires for our thinking, our, if we do have them, traditions and our theology to be under him, under the authority of his word, and then that redirects my thinking. Is the renewing, it's Romans chapter 12, the renewing of my mind. I cannot come to the scripture with a thought, trying to get the scripture to, to meet my need in that thought. No, I must come to the very word of God and allow that through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me, even if I don't understand it, even when I first hear it, if I become frustrated, upset, or even angry, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. It is written even if I do not understand it, even if I currently do not like it. And that's what's happening in this passage. They've been living this way traditionally. They've been believing this way. It is equivalent to the Scripture. And Jesus shows up and says, you've got this all wrong, all wrong. We must fight the temptation, brothers and sisters, to elevate our thoughts, traditions, and personal preferences above the very Word of God. I remember as a new Christian, I grew up, like I said, in a Pentecostal charismatic church. That means that, and several things, but you can lose your salvation. It also meant that I was taught my entire life that you do not have the Holy Spirit indwelled amongst you or inside of you unless you speak in tongues. Those are all things that I was taught my entire life until Jesus saved me at 19. And I remember being involved in crusade, and all I had, though, was this regurgitated theology that I had been taught poorly my entire life. And so I remember sitting inside of trainings and these sorts of things, getting red-faced mad, thinking, man, these Baptists are leading, leading people to the pit with this terrible theology. And this predestination, election, God's sovereignty junk sounds more like the pits of hell than it can be the God that I serve. I mean, I'm American. I'm free. I'm a brave right here. And what happens is, is gospel theology totally destroys me being in control. It totally destroys that. It causes my hand to go from a tight grip, I got this, to open hands at the realization of God having this. I want you to understand this. Whether you have been here for five years or this is your first day, you need to get this whether you stay here or whether you leave. If me, Pastor Justin, any preacher here, or if any preacher at any place that you go to is not preaching the Word of God, then you should stop following him as the pastor. There should be no question. Now, I'm not saying you can't have 
conversations, um, that you should confront them, again, as Jesus did, using the Scripture. Well, Pastor, what do you mean by this? You know, don't call him on a Friday night at 12 o'clock with your idea, all right? He's probably not going to be very pastoral. I've been asleep for five hours by then, and so I'm not going to be nice, all right? And so it is important for you to get this. It is important for me to get this. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God is not God. However, it points us to the person and character of God. We come to the Scripture because we want to come to God. We want to know the the majesty and the greatness of the glory of our God. And so we must think less, not not like having bad self-esteem, but thinking less of ourselves, thinking more of God and saying, God, you direct my thoughts. You direct my actions. You direct how I will live and how we will live as a church. David Platt once said this, as long as the thoughts of man are central in the church, the worship of man will be central. A word-saturated church leads to God-glorifying worship. What you and I think is not anywhere as important as what the Word of God says, even if the culture tells you that this is a, you know, just full of bigotry and, and wrongness and that it tells people and it corrupts people and all these sorts of things. If you are truly a follower of Jesus, come to the Word. Rest in this Word. It is more important than what we think. So the question here that continues to be asked is, so what then makes a person unclean or unholy? What makes us unclean then? If it's not these things. Let's look. Verse 10. And he called the people and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the person. So Jesus keeps in the kind of same strain of thought. He's pulled some closer followers, his disciples, probably to the side at this point. I think maybe Mark's gospel even tells us that may have moved into a home by now. And so Jesus has kind of taken this, this outward, what happened in the public, And he's now teaching his closest followers some deeper truths. Notice, if you're a Jew, what Jesus has just said. What you put into your mouth doesn't make you unclean. Jesus has just shot the sacred cow of the judicial understanding of all the food laws. These brothers can eat bacon. It's a great day for these guys. I mean, the only thing better than bacon is bacon wrapped in more bacon. I mean, it is, I don't know what's going to be in heaven to replace bacon, but it is going to be amazing, okay? It is going to be absolutely amazing. Jesus is sitting there, but again, imagine the tension. You've been taught this. Like the idea of eating a piece of pork your entire life makes you want to gag, And Jesus is always saying, it's now saying, you eating that bacon doesn't make you unclean. The the ceremonial laws have now been destroyed. Paul's going to talk about this later in Romans chapter 14 when he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He goes on here, verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and says, 
Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard these sayings or when they heard the, this saying? So you feel that tension there. I mean, even the disciples are like, we need, we need to get some, we, we don't know about this Jesus. Like, I mean, I can have some shrimp. That doesn't make me dirty anymore. It's not what I put in my mouth. It's what comes out of my mouth. Jesus, did you know, Jesus, this is extremely serious. The Pharisees are, man, they are upset. They are mad. They are angry. I mean, I've been in situations where I've had biblical conversations with people and them get fighting mad over me. Not just the donut man. I'm talking about Bible-to-Bible discussion and people getting ticked. And a lot of times I'm saying, okay, here's the deal. It is not about my thoughts. It is not about my opinion. Can I merely just read this? And if it does not say what it says right here, then please, if you have any compassion toward me, if you have any love toward me, then steer me, help me understand then, what does this mean then? people get mad. They want to fight or they just leave. And they'll call you all sorts of names, but I want you to know it is, it is worthy to be called a lot of names and your name be written in the Lamb's Book of Life for faithfulness in Jesus and what he has done than to be unfaithful and to be right with the public. We Jesus, because of Jesus, he speaks into this idea in, in verse 12. The disciples came to him. We said that. Verse 13, he answered, Every plant that the, my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind gods. So he goes back to the kind of wheat and, and weeds picture that we saw a few chapters ago. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Both will fall into the pit. Spiritual blindness and hypocrisy. You know, a lot of times, and this is one definition of it, when we say a hypocrite, like um, Pastor Justin is ministering to somebody, and I ask that you would continue to pray for this man. Pastor Justin is trying to talk to him, and Justin's been asking this guy. He professes to be a Christian, and he says, man, I don't want to go to church because there's just a bunch of hypocrites there. That's why I don't have anything to do with church. Anybody ever heard that before? Right? So a lot of times when we say hypocrite, what their meaning is, is that one, that they're not one. Two, that um, a hypocrite is a person who preaches one thing but doesn't live that way. Isn't that the traditional definition? It has a part two. The part two is this, is, is that um, a deeper meaning would be this, that they, they do it. They preach it, and they do it. But it's not from the right motivation or heart. See, one says you preach it and you don't do. But also hypocrisy is you preach it, you do it, but your heart's motivation is wrong. This is where the Pharisees are. They are preaching these things. They are doing these things. But their heart is wrong. It is corrupt. It is wretched. It is dark. It is dirty. They believe that their hands may be dirty and must be spiritually or, 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 you know, symbolically clean, but Jesus is saying, no, it's an issue of what is taking place inside of their hearts. The best way to disguise a rebellious heart toward God is by outward forms of piety. The easiest place to be a Christian is right here, right now. True? 
In the Gospel Transformation Bible, read this quote to you. Few things are more spiritually harmful than the outward practice of religion apart from the repentance and faith characterized by a true follower of Jesus. The person who teaches and practices religious rules without the inner transformation of the heart often becomes self-deceived or blind. By contrast, the secret practice of piety, obedience, is a useful indicator that one's heart is in the right condition. So let me ask you. Let me ask me. What does your secret obedience look like? And some of you right now, you don't want to go there. I want you to know that is at the essence of the Pharisees here. What do you mean? They were blind. They did not believe that these truths applied to them. The deep question for us is, man, what, what is going on in your relationship with Jesus or the lack thereof when no one else is watching is a better indicator than Eric Baker standing up here delivering a sermon because there are people that are lost and undone with God that are making bazillions of monies as pastors and elders of churches preaching a false prosperity gospel. Do not be impressed that God has given me a big mouth. Do not be impressed that each other is here this morning. I wrote something in the front of my Bible I, the last two years that this reminder, God is not impressed that I am reading His Word. But may I be impressed and more impressed with Him by doing so. If you hadn't hit your prayer closet this morning, or excuse me, this week, if you've not been in God's Word this week, I want you to understand that is the barometer, that is the, the rubric of our hearts. Not you being here this morning. God does not need your service. Do you get that? God does not need you to pick up a chair. God does not need you to be on a setup team. God does not need me to preach this word. God does not need my wife to be in mission kids last night, right now. God does not need our service. He is God, but he has so chosen to give us an opportunity. But only you know the condition of your heart, of why you are sitting here even right now in this moment. And only God knows my heart, and I'm the one up here preaching the very gospel. You must not be afraid to ask those tough, tough questions. May we remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, that Cain and Abel both worshipped God. They both gave something. But the issue was what was in their hearts and their hearts' motivation. That's what led to the disobedience of Cain. Verse 17. And Jesus Keeps it real here. Uh, well, let's go back one. 16. And so he says this, and Peter says, you got to explain this more to me. And Jesus says, are you still without understanding? Verse 17. Get this. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. 
But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Get what Jesus, Jesus gives us an anatomy lesson. I want, to be, I want to be careful here, but the truth of what Jesus is saying here in verse 17 is you eat food, goes through your, your process, and then it is expelled outside of your body. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, your and my heart, apart from Jesus, is more filthy than what is in the toilet. Maybe that's why he allows us to do this. See, there's a gospel-pointing picture in everything of life. Jesus is saying, our excrement is more clean than you and I's heart apart from Jesus. I mean, this is a serious thing. I mean, we don't, our hearts are filthy. Our sinful nature has given us congestive heart failure. Only Jesus can change a man's heart. Psalm 147.3, he heals up the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. But Jeremiah reminds us in 9.8, the tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are wretched. Our hearts are completely and utterly depraved apart from Jesus. Look what he says. It is out of the mouth. Out of the mouth. What comes out of the mouth? Evil thoughts. Mark, even his translation, he says what comes out of the man. Jesus, I think here in Matthew, because of the, he's trying to keep with this kind of mouth and eating theme, but Mark calls it what comes out of the man. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Hopefully, you've only murdered people with your mind this morning, but I want you to know that that is also deplorable. Hopefully you have not committed physical adultery, but if you have so with your mind, Jesus says that that is adultery. I pray to Jesus that you are not involved in pornonia, which our culture has become so saturated with in the sexual immorality. Hopefully you do not steal anything, whether it's a paper clip from your office or from money from the local bank. Hopefully when someone asks you a question, you do not bear false witness against them. But keeping with this slim, notice the last thing that Jesus says is slander. Do you and I often slander people? Husbands and wives, look at me. When your husband or wife isn't present, do you slander them? Do you rip them apart to other people? Even if there's a hint of truth in what you're saying, it is not the place or the right thing to do in God's eyes to slander your spouse even if you are divorced from them or if they are a deadbeat and have done horrific things to you. It is not your place to go to other pockets of men and talk poorly about your wife. My old lady? No, that is not cool, gentlemen. You know, my terrible husband. Gossip. All these things reflect the condition of our hearts. 
when you stub your toe or when your child does something that they should not do is an inappropriate word, the first thing that comes across your lips. I want you to know today, this is serious, that is a, a condition, an evaluation of what is going on inside of your very heart. And I want you to know, mashed potatoes can be just as bad as a cuss word as anything else. If it is done with a heart that does not reflect that of the gospel. But we've become a culture where it's just like, nah. And Jesus is saying, no, no. That word doesn't make you bad. You need to get that. Your nature is bad. Therefore, you do bad things. Looking at porn today does not make you a sinner. Because you are a sinner, you look at porn. All right? You will slander that person. You will gossip about that person. You will murder them with your thoughts. You will commit sexual immorality with them in your mind. This is a condition of your heart. This is extremely serious. So that leads us asking the question that is asked in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? Who can say, I am clean from my sin? You know who can say that? None of us. None of us. So you know where that leaves us? Helpless within ourselves. But I want you to understand something this morning in closing, that Jesus reveals something greater about his character. You know what? Jesus has to drive us to these heart moments like he is doing this morning. I've been praying, God, do heart work this morning. Do heart work this morning. Do heart work this morning. Because it is heart work that ultimately leads to change. Because Jesus revealing in his character as he's trying to do in his disciples is all the things that you are trying to work your way to get to God or to become God yourself will always leave you faulty and, and incapable of being able to change the very leopards or the skin color that you have as the word says. You cannot change it. But there is one. His name is Jesus, and he is the arrester of people's congestive heart failure. He is the one, as that heart is dying, that can reach very into that chest and causes it to beat on rhythm once again. And that is what he does in the power of the resurrection, that he takes dead things and brings them to life once again. Again, this is our Jesus. If your heart is beating this morning, it is because Jesus is, is holding it and clasping it in his hands for him, for his glory. The gospel leaves us if that this is the depths of our wretchedness and depravity, then there is nothing I can do. As we sing the song here, I worked my fingers down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. But, Father, you worked your will. Jesus' response is, is, you can't, but I can. What is not in your character, my character, and my nature is found in the character and nature of Jesus. And you want to know the condition of your heart, what comes out of your mouth. We've often said the statement, you know, you'll say, um, growing up to your kids, you'll say, you know, garbage in, 
garbage out. And we usually think, man, if I look at this, if I touch this, be careful little eyes what you see, all these sorts of things, then that puts garbage inside of me. And I understand that there's a hint of truth of this, but you need to get it. The garbage is there. It is in you. Garbage in. It's here. Garbage comes out. And yet Jesus says, man, I'm going to take these enemies of mine. I'm going to take these wretched, deplorable hearts. And I, through the cross, through the resurrection, are going to bring new life, cause new air to fill those spiritual lungs. And I am going to take what is broken, what is diseased, what is dead, and I am going to make them new. Only Jesus can change the heart. Once again, he heals up the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. In Acts chapter 15, verses 8 through 10, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? God knows the heart. Come to him, all who are heavy laden, he will give you rest. My yoke is easy because he is carrying all the weight. He takes you where, where you are. That fight that you had before you got here this morning, the thing that you were looking at last night, that, that deplorable thought that you were having on Wednesday afternoon, Jesus is saying, I take those people and I make them mine. Having clean hands or being at a gathering this morning is not your mediator between you and God. Jesus is. And over and over throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount because I do believe that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and he illustrates it throughout the rest of his ministry and we see it once again in Matthew chapter 8, 5, verse 8 when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Your only hope is that if Jesus will cleanse your heart this morning, if you are lost and undone without him in your sin, if you are churched up, if you are a Pharisee, if you are wearing the religious mask to you, I beg you, I plead with you as one of your pastors, but ultimately as a member of this church and your brother, and I hope to be brother in Christ one day, I encourage you to come to this Jesus, and he will make your heart clean. Because as you think you're coming to him, I want you to know if you're here, I believe that it is by divine appointment because God has come to us. Come to Jesus and become new in him. Let's pray.